Welcome to Celebration Church's podcast. We hope this helps you to know God better and trust Him more. To learn more about Celebration Church, please visit us at celebrationchurchlive.com. Um, we have, are wrapping up a series today. We're in the, in the sixth part. If you've missed the other ones, guess what? You can get on Spotify or you can get on um, any sort of podcast app and you can catch up with that. Um, uh, YouTube, Facebook, lots of spaces where you can regroup and cover some of those things. But today we're finishing up um, this series where we've looked at what it means to live contrary to popular opinion. And uh, we've just been tracking through the life of Daniel, the, the ministry of Daniel. What a unique place that he was called to live and to function and to flourish. And so uh, if you'll just... Uh, um, <clears throat> refocus with me on this idea that we've led off with over and over and over again through this series, that as culture moves further away from life in Jesus, we must learn to live contrary to popular opinion. We've got to learn to do it because it's not natural. It's natural for us to kind of be influenced by just things that are in our space. I'm from the way we speak, you know, <clears throat> around here, everybody talks right, and so, but if you go someplace else, they notice you say right instead of right, although I think I just did it. I don't know how to say right without saying right, and so, but it's just part of our culture. It's the way we do it, and it has just been influenced. They don't do it on purpose. It's just Part of it. And even though it's great to have some regional things and whatnot, there's nothing wrong with that at all. But here's what happens is there's other stuff that begins to piggyback on top of that. It begins to slide in and begins to shift the experience little by little, slowly, <clears throat> uh, moment by moment. And if we don't watch it, we'll look up and we'll have something that's really hardly recognizable as a life in Christ at all. Um, this past week, um, I got to celebrate my birthday. I got to turn 49 years old. Bless God. It's, uh, 49's good. There ain't a thing in the world wrong with 49. Uh, getting older is an awesome thing. Um, I want that as opposed to the opposite, um, you know, as opposed to not being here to age. And so I like being on this planet. And so um, getting older is good. And so, but Cutie and I, we got to sneak away for a little bit and go have some fun for my birthday. And um, as we were wrapping the trip up and had, getting ready to, to get out of the hotel, we just needed a quick breakfast. And I ran down the street from our hotel, just walked a couple of blocks and went to a, a little spot um, we like. It's a chain. You've probably eaten there before, the Corner Bakery. And one of the things that Cutie loves is she likes some, she likes some iced tea. And being from West, West Texas girl, she likes a strong brew. She don't want no sissy tea. And so when she drinks it, she wants to taste some tea. And they typically do a really good job. They, and so I go there on purpose to get her a large iced tea. So go through the process, get everything that I need to get, get my coffee, get my order done, get the cup, go over there to get the, get the tea and begin to pour that. And it is the saddest looking excuse for tea you've ever seen. It is barely even tan. It is just, 
it, it, it looks like San Angelo water is what it looks like. Like you just open your tap, they call that tea. And so it's just like, yeah, that stuff that your, your tub looks somehow yellow. Like, like how did this happen? I don't just filled my tub. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's what this looked like. And so it, it just, and I, I was like, this is not their tea. Had I never been there before, I'd have just said that this place has no idea how tea is made. And, uh, but we'd been there. We knew what to expect. We knew what was the standard. And so I nicely go up to the lady that it's Saturday morning, it's slammed, it's busy. And the, uh, go up to the lady and I show her the tea. It's like, ma'am, this, this is the tea. She said, she looks at it and she immediately is like, yeah, that, that's not right. Thank you for telling me. It's like, that's She recognized this is, this is not represent us well. And she said, I'll make you some fresh tea, which was not fast. And so I waited, was able to be husband of the year and take some nice, good tea to my wife with all her stuff that she likes. And, um, but the truth is, is because we, I knew what the standard was. They knew what the standard was. This diluted version would not suffice. It wouldn't suffice. It was not okay. We're just not going to be say that this is okay to have this diluted version. That maybe if you did some sort of analysis and you broke it down, that there were some specks of some tea leaves in there on some level. And that you could try to call that tea. And slowly but surely, that is what culture is trying to do to our lives in Christ. Is try to say that living a full life in Christ, it's, it's not okay. It's too aggressive. It's too out there. It's, it's holding up these truths that, that there's a place that life is called to live. There are things that are life-giving and there are things that are destructive. There are things that we're called to do and there are things we're called to avoid. And somehow that can make people uncomfortable and we can't do that. We can't, we can't talk about those kinds of things and, and therefore try to begin to dilute who, what we're called to be and who we are. And we cannot let go of that. But the truth is, is that when we're confronted with that diluting process, the way to handle it is in a life-giving, caring way. I didn't go over to that lady and yell at her. You call this tea? This is the saddest excuse for tea I've ever seen in my life. What are you trying to do here? What are you trying to sell? I, I, I didn't do it. I just said, ma'am, I, I don't think this is what is your standard. And she responded in a very life-giving, wonderful, responsive way. We don't have to be jerks. We can hold to the standard. We can hold to the truth of what real life in Christ looks like without having to be obnoxious in that space. And Romans chapter 12, verse 2, just calls us deeper into this place. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed. You're either being conformed or you're being transformed, and the space where we begin to learn to operate in a different way is the renewing of our mind. We begin to understand what life in Christ actually looks like, what it actually is. And as we look through the life of Daniel, and we're, we're about to get into Daniel chapter 2, then we need to understand that this truth and this goes all the way through that we can see change. We can see change in our world happen by responding in love. 
This is the truth all the way through. All the way through. Because God is love. When the scriptures boil it down, have one descriptor for God. It's love. So everything else about God fits under the umbrella of real, genuine God kind of love. Well, what does love do? Love calls us to truth. Love points out things that are destructive. And sometimes we enjoy destructive things. And love says, guess what? I love you enough to point out that these things are destructive. You need to begin to, to be transformed and see that there's a different way to live. And love does that. Everything that God is and functions in love. So if you and I are going to live contrary to popular opinion, we have to understand our response has to always be anchored, led by, and engulfed in this space of love. Why? Because love will transform an environment, transform an environment. There was a, an, a little story that my pastor and mentor that raised me up in ministry, Dr. John Holler, um, used to would would tell when he would preach, and he he got it from somebody else, and and uh, but it, it just always stayed with me. And he talked about the story was about this guy um, who had been married um, for a number of years, and been married for like twenty one years, and and um, had gone to get some counsel. Um, his marriage had been in a rough patch for a while. Um, he was just quietly, silently suffering. He was just frustrated. And he was, went to go get some counsel from this counselor and, and was like just frustrated. He's like, I, I'm done. I'm calling the lawyer. I'm out of this. I'm through. Uh, I, I just don't even know what to do. This, this wasn't what I wanted in life, but I, I'm just so frustrated. I cannot live with this woman anymore. And the counselor's like, all right. All right, I, I've got a plan for you. If you'll work with me, he's like, because he, she's obviously caused you a lot of pain. Oh, man, she's caused me pain. Oh, she, she, yes, yes. She's obviously caused you a lot of frustration. Oh, my gosh, frustration every day. I just, I, I just, yes, yes, yes. He said, so here, I've got a plan. I've got a plan that is going to help you be able to just really put it to her in this divorce. He's like, tell me, tell me your plan. He said, what I need you to do is take 60 days. So I need you to take 60 days, and I need you to go back home, and I need you to just begin to be kind. Kind? Are you kidding? That woman is mean. I can't stand being in the same room with that woman. I'm not supposed to be kind. He's like, no, I'm serious. He said, here's the plan. You're going to be kind, and, and you're going to be thoughtful, and you're going to be helpful, and any little thing you can do that can try to make her life a little better and a little easier, I, I want you to begin to do those things. And all of a sudden, you're going to give her some of the 60 of the best days of her life. She's just been so cared for and all that. She's just going to take all this. And then all of a sudden, right when she's just having just the, this best, most wonderful experience, man, you're going to yank the rug out from under and say, woman, I'm out of here. You don't deserve this. I'm gone. He's like, that's kind of brilliant. Ah, you're right. He's like, right now if I left, she'd probably be okay with it. But you know what? Um, I, I'm, that's, that's brilliant. So he goes back and he starts to do it. He begins to do all the stuff. He begins to be loving and caring and complimenting. Every morning when she got ready, he'd just tell her how pretty she looked. And if she made something, he'd tell her how, how tasty it was and let her know that her ideas were good and incorporate them into the way the household functioned and, and just was encouraging and bought her her favorite little snacks and had those there. Man, he was just, 
he interrupted. And the counselor had not had the follow-up appointment. And things were not, he had not heard anything. So about day 45, he, he calls the dude. He's like, okay, you know, have you, have you been working the plan? And, and I said, are you, are you ready to begin to call the lawyer? We're, we're about two weeks out from you being able to pull the rug out from under this lady. And, and he's like, are you kidding? There's no way I'd divorce that woman. That woman's amazing. He's like, that woman is absolute angel to live with. There is no way I would ever leave this lady. I love her more than the day that I married her. And the truth is, is when we begin, when somebody decides to begin to respond in love, it begins to change the entire environment. All of a sudden, two things begin to happen. Someone begins to be treated with love and respect, and somebody begins to look and analyze through the lens of love and respect. And all of a sudden, everything begins to shift. And now, what begins to come out of that, what begins to grow out of that, begins to automatically change. Paul, I mean, Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, 9, says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary. This is the way normal life goes. There's evil seeing more and more of it. There are insults, seeing more and more of it. If we're going to live contrary to popular opinion, we're going to have to take the Bible's word on what contrary looks like. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. This is where you were called. This is how you were called to live. The entire world normally responds with insults. When an insult is given, an insult is automatically pops back. When something evil is done, we automatically just, it just begins to just come out of us. All of a sudden, it's like this, this little avalanche that begins. One little negative thing starts another negative thing and another negative thing. And the only way it stops is when finally something is so solid that all of it hits it and it doesn't respond in the same way. It does something contrary. It says, no, I'm not going in that direction. And the scriptures actually says, this is to what we were called. If we respond to evil with evil and insult with insult, we're living beneath our calling. This is not what we were called. And here's the problem. Here's the problem is most of the time, if we say, well, if I respond to an insult with blessing, when in that little exchange, I, I got the short end of the deal. I got the insult, and, and they got a blessing. The problem is, is we're not factoring in the third party here. Because there's always a third party. There's always a third party in every, in every circumstance. It's not just me and them. It's God is always there as well. And the scriptures, what Peter's reminding is, he says, you know what? Yes, there may be in that exchange, there may have been insult and, and blessing. And you got the short end of the deal on that. But guess what? He says, your father in heaven who sees you, he's going to make sure when all the dust settles, you inherit a blessing. And you begin to respond the way you're called to do. When you begin to echo heaven itself. When, you, when insults come your way and you bring back a blessing, all of a sudden that is part of heaven invading earth. That is not normal. That is not the way things normally operate. But when we begin to operate like heaven operates, all of a sudden we begin to open the doors of heaven. All of a sudden we begin to see that a blessing comes in. And you know what's the greatest blessing you could have out of having received somebody giving you an insult? 
is not having that insult carried on your shoulders for the next three hours or the next three days or the next three months. I know people who have carried insults for three decades or more that they can recall that slight that someone said years and years ago and it hurts today just as bad as it hurt then. Hurts just as bad. One of the greatest blessings you can possibly have though an insult has been thrown your way is that the Holy Spirit free you from the pain of that insult, from the pain of that attack, from the pain of that wound. It's one of the most wonderful blessings you could possibly get. And we will begin to respond the way that God has called us to respond. We open ourselves up to allow the healing that only He can bring in. We let His healing begin to invade our hearts. When we begin to respond in his way. As we begin to look at Daniel chapter 2, we've bounced around in the book of Daniel, and I've wanted to end on this story because in Daniel chapter 1, we see Daniel. Um, he was living his life there in the, in the realm of Judah, um, it, more than likely in Jerusalem itself. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's army has come in, sieged the town, totally decimated grab all the sharpest, most intelligent uh, young men, haul them off and make them serve the king. And Daniel is in that group. And his entire, his entire household, everything is just decimated. He's been taken captive. And he finds himself in this foreign land. And we see in chapter 1 how he handles himself. And he handles himself in such an amazing way, holding on to the truths of the life God has called him to live and holding on to a place of, of operating in love and operating on a higher level than everyone else around him. And man, it's amazing. But here in, in, in chapter 2, it's the space where Daniel all of a sudden begins to be singled out and we begin to see he's just finished up his, his time of training in his boot camp. The way this is <clears throat> done, it, it looks like it's earlier in that, but you have to kind of be a... You have to understand the way they did the different years and the reigns of the king. But as we look in this, in Daniel uh, chapter 2, Daniel and his friends, have, they've just come out of ser how to serve the king boot camp. And so they're super young. He's probably 20, 21 years old at this time. And here in um, verse 1, it says, In the second year of, the, of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar, had dreams, and his mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. And when they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we'll interpret it. Sounds kind of like normal. Like, you tell me your dream, I'll tell you what, it th what I think it means. Ah, king had a different plan. It says, the king replied to the astrologers, ah, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I'll have you cut into pieces. Your house is turned into piles of rubble. <laughs> oh, there's some upside. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, uh, you'll receive from me the gifts and rewards and, and great honor. So tell me the dream 
and interpret it for me. All I'm going to tell you is I had a dream, and I need you to tell me the whole thing. What Nebuchadnezzar needed to know is that he said, I need to know that if you can tell me the dream, then you have the authority also to tell me what it means. Anybody can give me their spin on what a dream means. He's like, I need to know the actual meaning of this dream. So you're going to have to actually tell me what it was. And so in verse 7 it says, and once more they replied, let the king tell the servants the dream and, and we'll interpret it. And then the king answered, I'm certain that you're trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there's only one penalty for you. You have, cons you have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation would change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. And the astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks no king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This is a God-sized task, king. This is a God-sized task. And was all said and done, Nebuchadnezzar needed to know that. Nebuchadnezzar needed to know that this was something that only God was going to be able to bring about. Well, guess what? When God-sized tasks open up, man, I tell you what, we've got a God who will step up. And so in Daniel chapter 2, verse 12, it says, This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. This includes Daniel and his buddies. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and the men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. So here's Daniel. Daniel was living his life a few years before in the, in the land of Judah. This invading army comes in, takes over. Daniel stands his ground once he's taken off captive and kindly, gently, strongly stands his ground with his convictions. And it earns him favor. He finds himself rising to the top in Daniel chapter 1. But all of a sudden now, when he's thought, man, maybe things begin to turn around, now an execution order before he can even do anything. He's, he's going to be executed. Daniel easily could have said, how is this gaining me anything? I have followed my convictions in a foreign land, and now they're trying to kill me? Now they're sending an executioner to my house to kill me? God, how does serving you help anything at all? We have to avoid that trap. The enemy wants to begin to come in and take our eyes off of our God who's going to carry us through it and have us get frustrated over the next wave of attack. As we are learning to live contrary to popular opinion, we have to recognize it's not just making a stance for God once. And then all of a sudden we do it and then it's over and we never have to do it again. No, cult, there's just waves it. Culture's unrelenting. As things are shifting away from life in Jesus, we're going to continue to see it. And we have to learn to stand in our convictions 
And we, here we see the beautiful way that Daniel does it. Let's look at, chat, at verse 14. and says, when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of ba Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. We've seen, we've seen all through the book of Daniel that Daniel is able to stand in a place of, of being solid on his relationship with God and also being considerate and loving in, of other people. He didn't just say, this is ridiculous, this is stupid. All of a sudden, the king is about to annihilate all his best people. He's so freaked out about a dream, he actually has a kingdom to run. This is the most ludicrous, stupid decision anybody could possibly make. He needs to quit freaking out over this dumb dream, and he needs to understand he's got an entire kingdom to run, and he's about to, he's about to wipe out his best people. No, he doesn't respond. He responds with wisdom. He responds with tact. He responds in a place of caring. He begins to care towards people. This is him talking to his executioner. All of a sudden, Daniel has, turns his executioner into an advocate. And he's asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? And Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. Arioch was not there to have a conversation. Arioch was there to cut people to pieces. Remember, that was the said, if you don't, we're going to cut you to pieces and turn your houses into piles of rubble. That was what he was there to do. He wasn't there to have conversations. But Daniel was so tactful. Daniel was so wise in the way he interacted. This guy paused his chopping and destruction work and had a conversation with him. And he explained the matter to Daniel. And at this, Daniel went to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Daniel, responding in love, even to his executioner, changed the environment. It changed it. All of a sudden, a guy who didn't, wasn't there trying to get a solution, he was trying to there to just fulfill orders. All of a sudden now, because Daniel responds in this way, but now Daniel's in this place. He's walking in love, but he knows he's not called to do this alone, and we need to understand that we all need friends that know how to pray. We need people that know how to stand with us. In verse 17, it says, Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Remember from week one, we know them better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. That was his like, let's pray so we don't die. We need to hear this. You know, that's, there's nothing wrong with that kind of prayer. Um, man, everything's going sideways, everything's going wrong. Lord, I want you to protect me in the middle of this. But we're going to see that in their place of intercession, hearts, even Daniel's heart, began to soften and shift. And then in verse 19, during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then Daniel praised the God of heaven. 
I love that as soon as Daniel gets the solution that's going to save him and his buddy's life, he doesn't immediately run off to the king and say, hey, let me explain this. Daniel pauses and gives praise to God. He still needs to, the, the execution order hasn't gone anywhere. The king still thinks nobody knows and nobody can do anything about it. Daniel is sitting on the solution. And before he runs off to fix things for himself, he immediately gives praise to God. We see Daniel's heart for God just reflected in this over and over and over again. But part of this was these people who were praying with him, these, these friends he had in his corner. Whenever I came here to ASU to, to go to college, um, I uh, about middle of the, of the year, God really began to just um, tug at my heart, and, and I began to get serious about my relationship with God. I had no idea I was going to be a minister. I had no idea that was even remotely in my future. I just knew I needed to grow my relationship with God. And in that, um, then as I was having my, my early conversations with God, I said, God, I, I, I know me. I can't do this by myself. I need some friends. God, I need some friends who are going in this direction with you. I will be terrible at this by myself. My, my high school buddies, I love those guys, but they're not going in this direction. And I need people who are going in this direction. And that was one of my very first prayers in my relationship with God. And God immediately began to put some young men in my life that are pivotal there's a, you know, there's a guy named Kelly Dunn who's a part of our church to, the, to this day. He's been in my life for 29 years, and I'm so thankful for, for Kelly. And, and it was just played a pivotal role in my life. The guy named Brandon Moore, I got to attend his son's wedding last night. He played a pivotal role in my life as a friend. A guy named Chris Kramer, and I prayed for a godly roommate, and, and I was able to, to be there. And God used these people in this YA young adult years who were vital in my life. I had no idea what was ahead. I just knew in that moment, in that space, I needed some people who were going to be able to support me and help me move in the right direction. Folks, this is why small groups are so important. If you don't have have people who you can rely on and, and link arms with in tough times when, when all of a sudden it feels like a death order has been handed to you and your family. If you don't have three people who you can get on a prayer team, you need to get, find some people. And I'm telling you, the small group's a great place to do it. It's not the only place to do it, but it's a great place to do it. And you need some people who can lock arms with you and lock place in prayer and go to battle with you. And Daniel did. He understood it. Acts chapter 2, verse 46 reminds us of this, that every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. You know, having Christian fellowship isn't always about having to talk about the Bible all the time or, or pray all the time. Just having some meals together with glad and sincere hearts is a real part of life together in Christ. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says, let us consider, which means to think about, be strategic about, how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. There's a space where it's real easy for us to kind of begin to give up on meeting together. And guess what? That's not a COVID 2020 thing that all of a sudden that showed up and, and now people are not valuing uh, in-person meetings anymore. Guess what? That was way back in early church. This has been a pressure that's been on us 
for, for centuries and centuries and centuries. And it's something we have to purposely work against. But as we're looking at this, as we're looking at, at responding in love and, and having a team of people around us, the, the final piece to this is knowing that God loves those who don't love you. It frees you to be you. So many times it it's feels like that, that people who are, who are haters, people who are attackers, people who are toxic can begin to come in and make you not be you anymore. But the truth is, is when we factor in God's love and God's vision for that person, all of a sudden we can begin to operate above their toxicity. You know when it begins to change us is when we stay on the level of the toxicity. That's when it begins to change us. That's when it begins to impact us. When we begin to see from God's level, that toxicity does not begin to impact us anymore. When we begin to understand this is somebody that God loves. Folks, I, I get it. I get it. There's, we have to have, under, have healthy boundaries and all those different things and, and be aware of, of hurtful relationships. I get that. But if every believer pulled away from every toxic person, what are these people supposed to do? Jesus died for the toxic too. Um, I don't know about you, but I've been a toxic person. I'm so thankful somebody loved me. I'm so thankful somebody stood there with me. Somebody saw me from heaven's perspective and didn't let my venom, didn't let my nastiness be able to impact them, but they, with the love of God, began to impact me. Folks, we are called to be in the middle of this. We're called to be a light in the darkness. And that darkness isn't a cloud coming over San Angelo. No, it, the darkness is in people. We're called to be the light of the world. And pain and brokenness and hurt begin to cloud out the light that God has created for every person. For every person. And for us to be a light that begins to spark the light of God in them. Begin to, but we have to be connected. We have to be there. We have to understand that there are love. We see in Daniel chapter 2, verse 26, as we're wrapping up, that the king asked Daniel, also called Belshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he is asked about. But there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Praise God when there's nothing anybody can do, there's a God in heaven who can do. And then here Daniel explains, he says, as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive. Remember he prayed that it would be revealed so that him and his buddies wouldn't die. If we're going to go over what he said, God's revealed this to me because you know, I've been pretty legit before him, and he's not going to let me die. That could be an explanation here. But somewhere in this place of intercession, someplace in place of praying for the king, Daniel got God's heart for the king. And he says um, that God has made this mystery known uh, so that you may know, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. We don't have time to get into the dream and the full interpretation. But when it was all said and done, this dream, it was about Jesus coming. 
and establishing a kingdom that would cover the entire earth and a kingdom that would never end. That there would be all sorts of kingdoms that would rise and fall throughout the coming centuries. But in the end, that there would be a kingdom not created by human hands that would overshadow the entire earth and his kingdom would not end. In this space, this wicked king that put a death sentence on Daniel, God was revealing to him his plan with Jesus and Daniel got to be the one to interpret it. God had had a heart to reveal his plan to a wicked person the whole time. God has a plan for that wicked person. That person that drives you up the wall, God's got a plan. That person that insults you, God's got a plan for them. And if we'll begin to operate contrary to normal things and begin to respond, not insult with insult or evil with evil, but respond in love, it will change everything. Matthew chapter 5 verse 44 tells us this, but I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Our bottom line today, if we're going to live contrary to popular opinion, the thing that's the most contrary to culture is love. Love is contrary. You walk in love, you walk in real godly love, and you'll, you'll live contrary to popular opinion all day long, every day without any problems. It's God's love from first to last. And so I want to create a moment right here and now, an opportunity for you to embrace that love, that love that's here, that love that, that, that paid the price, that love that is Jesus. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were absolutely just being selfish and, and pursuing our own things, just like Nebuchadnezzar was, God had a bigger plan. It included Jesus. While you were doing your own thing, God had a bigger plan. And it's fulfilled in Jesus. And you're here today to say, I recognize that. Today, I'm ready to place my faith in Jesus, not in church not in me being better, but in Jesus. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Celebration Church. We hope you'll stay connected by following us online. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.